Smart Plays, Club Respect's new podcast, is where we bring the biggest problems facing Australian sport out of the darkness and shine a light on the hot topics that nobody wants to talk about. We're on a journey to bring sport into the modern world of respect and to rebuild the respect for each other that we need to have if sport is going to thrive. An environment that is free from harassment, bullying, degrading or intimidating behaviour. That's the aim of Basketball South Australia, who believe there's absolutely no excuse or circumstance to act poorly towards others on or off the court. State sporting associations hold a precarious position in Australian sport. They oversee and administer their respective sports from the top, but often lack the resources to ensure messaging and program take up at grassroots level. A predominantly volunteer workforce takes up this challenge. So the communication from the state sporting associations needs to be detailed, yet easy and compelling to implement. Be a Good Sport is Basketball South Australia's flagship program, outlining the standards and acceptable behaviours in stadiums across the state. And leading this charge is Operations Manager, Jackie McConville. I'm Tariq Bayrakla, and today I'm speaking with Jackie about the tinderbox atmosphere of basketball and how leagues and associations around the state are taking a unified stand against antisocial behaviour. Jackie, welcome to Smart Plays. Thank you. Great to be here. You've launched the Basketball South Australia program, Be A Good Sport. What's it about? Well, Be A Good Sport program is about exactly what you said in the intro. It's about creating a positive and supportive environment for everyone to thrive in, um, whether you're a participant, a player, a coach, a spectator, an official, it doesn't matter. It's about having a behaviour management framework that addresses everything that happens in that venue to create that positive environment. And what problems is it addressing? It's fundamentally uh, been developed to start to address the uh, referee retention and attraction issue, which all grassroots sports are experiencing. But it, it is about giving everyone really clear accountability for the role that they play in the environment. So a basketball stadium can often have hundreds of people in it and it's unrealistic to think that, you know, the organisers of that competition are going to be able to manage all of the behaviour that might might be occurring in that venue. So the framework really does go about setting out some really clear and simple step-by-step guidelines and expectations that mirrors community standards and starts to address the environment that we want to see in our sport and, and throughout the community. So we need to just start calling out inappropriate behaviour and this framework and the Be A Good Sport cam- campaign is a mechanism and a vehicle that we're trying to promote to help people do that. So the referee abuse, I'll, I'll talk about in a moment, but what are you trying to achieve with this program? With this program, we're trying to actually create an environment where we have upstanders and not bystanders. We're trying to get everybody involved to call out inappropriate behaviour and develop pathways and promote the opportunities for referees. We want people playing the sport and we want to address the behaviour that unfortunately does occur um, within our venues and within our sport and help people address the the inappropriate behaviour that we're seeing and the impact that it's having on the individuals that are on the end of that behaviour. What would you say is say the top one or two behaviours that you see that are, that are so bad that you, you've created a program to tackle it? 
Yeah, I guess one of the things when I first came into the role, um, it pretty quickly it became apparent to me just through um, anecdotal feedback, talking to people in the sport, parents, referees, there's a lot of, I guess, dissent that's shown towards basketball referees in particular. Basketball is a very fast-paced sport. It's very close proximity to each other, but there's also a high level of dialogue that occurs between coaches, players, referees. It is part of the sport that is quite unique. And Referees have to make decisions in split seconds to, you know, determine whether, you know, an infringement's incurred or whatever the rule might be. And there's always going to be somebody with a different view or interpretation of what they saw. So lots of questioning, lots of dissent. Unfortunately, you know, uh, I guess people disputing those those calls that referees might make. And that has come from off-court, on-court coaches it's something that is almost um, accepted or it's actually become normalised within the sport, that ongoing sort of questioning of a referee's decision. Yeah, and, and that can often stay there and often it can go even deeper as well and cause greater issues down the line. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you mentioned earlier that the, the close proximity to each other. Is there a unique challenge facing basketball compared to other sports like tennis or footy? Yeah, I think um, the close proximity is a really important factor as well as being indoors. Referees are within metres of spectators, so they can hear every little comment that they make. And it might just be, you know, one comment that that is, you know, what are you looking at, ref, or, you know, open your eyes, those sorts of things. And But if that referee has done multiple games that day or that night or the, that week, there's a real cumulative effect that can impact those referees and the mental health and well-being is quite significant in that we're at the point where we actually do have good numbers of referees but we have feedback from some of them that they don't necessarily want to enter into some of our competitions that are a little bit more higher level or where the pressure is a little bit higher because they don't want to also then have to deal with that constant questioning that is sometimes received from coaches, referees, spectators and even players sometimes. So as a state sporting association, as any type of other association that deals with behavior in sports stadiums or in basketball stadiums, you're always going to try and set a standard of what are the acceptable behaviors. Uh, so what are the strategies that you've used to address these issues of abuse from the sidelines? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not just a, a one-size-fits-all approach. There's so many mechanisms that, that need to be addressed and so many people and their roles that need to be addressed. So one of the first and foremost, the behaviour management framework that we've developed, it puts a central point of contact at venue, which is our stadium service officers or our SSOs. They are the first point of contact for any issues. And the framework also separates on-court and off-court issues. So the SSO is always there actively working the courts. They connect themselves with the, the coaches and the team managers at the beginning of every game. So we've introduced what we call our pre-game huddles, which are mandated before all of our games that take place. It's a 30-second huddle where the referees can set the expectations for communication. You know, captains can, you know, pump fists, wish each other a good game. Coaches do the same as well. So it really is an activity that breaks the ice humanises the people on court and we've had really positive feedback from parents of our younger referees to really say that, you know what, since we've been doing that, they actually feel more positive, that it sets up the ongoing game from a positive aspect and any questions that coaches or the team managers might have 
are delivered and asked in a far more positive way because they've broken that ice and they've built that connection right from the start. So there are a couple of strategies from the framework that we've put in place that we know just from feedback are really having a positive effect. The other off-court issues where we are becoming aware of if there's issues happening in the stadium or if the referee is actually hearing a bit of heckling or a few comments, what we've implemented is that the, the referee will bring that to the attention of the stadium services officer. But the stadium service officer will go and speak to that spectator's team. It's fairly easy in a basketball environment to sort of see who's supporting which team. So instead of actually trying to address the spectator themselves, part of the strategy and part of the framework enables them to go over to the team bench and the team manager and ask them for them to go and address the spectator's behaviour. We just let them know that the referees is, is hearing some of these comments. They're not really being supportive and it's not being helpful and they will go over and have a discussion. They already have an existing relationship with that parent or spectator or whoever it might be and it's just going to bring that to the attention of the club and their members are aware of what they're doing in that space. So that's been a really successful, I guess, way to manage what in the past may have just escalated to be quite a confrontational situation. I've sat my kids play in the system. Um, I'm often in stadiums. If I'm not at work, I am in stadiums. I've sat there and watched it unfold. I've sat there and watched it a break or at a timeout, a referee actually called the stadium supervisor out. They've had a bit of a word and then the game's gone on. And then I've just sat back and watched and the stadium service officer has gone over to the bench and had a little chat to the team manager. And then a few minutes later, I've seen the manager get up and they've gone over and had a bit of a chat to the crowd and and then that was it. And then there's no other issues that we've seen. So what we've seen is that just putting in some really simple, personable steps has resulted in um, some really positive impact in that we haven't seen the escalations occur that maybe have occurred in the past. Yeah, that's interesting, and, and particularly with the referees being so central and often a target yeah. by spectators, by coaches, do you do something very specific to protect referees? Yeah, there's a few things we've done to protect referees. One is, um, I mean, it's in our bylaws or in our rules of operations that they're not to be approached as well. It's not for anybody else to take issue with the referees. So there are some rules and guidelines that are very clear. Some of the other things to protect the referees are they have tools. So we've introduced the behavioural tech foul, which is additional tech foul to, I guess, the breaches of rules in the beaver rules and in the competition bylaws. What that does, and that's really clearly articulated within the framework, and we've done a lot of work to communicate the expectations so that the, the referees are very clear as to how to use their tools. And it's the same for the SSOs off the court. You know, it, it's a really consistent verbal warning type approach, which is, you know, we don't want to see that sort of behaviour. We want to see, you know, positive feedback or if it's on court, the referee is really encouraged all the time to give that verbal communication. If that continues, that will be a, a behavioural tech foul. And then they're encouraged to, you know, use their tools and, and issue those fouls. So there's some mechanisms in there that protect the referees. We've also um, developed some conflict management training, conflict resolution type training, um, specifically for referees. So taking sort of the, the general conflict resolution and communication skills and training and flipping it into a very basketball specific, I guess, course that's delivered over a few hours. All of our um, referees also have access to a chaplaincy service for support and their own wellbeing, just as a means to talk about whatever they might have experienced in the game or if there were certain things that were said that are maybe are sticking with them that they've got that option. So I guess overall we're trying to arm them with the tools as well as setting really clear um, processes for people to raise issues, to escalate concerns and that 
in in essence, the referees hopefully are starting to feel like they do have a, a level of protection and that they understand that there is a level of um, standard and, a, and accountability that we're going to hold all members to. And that includes their, themselves as well. So there's, there's an element in basketball where it's not one way. There is an expectation in our sport that there is, you know, questions and dialogue and explanations given between coaches and referees. That's what makes our sport unique. Maybe the NBA and some of our high level sports don't necessarily set the best example for our junior grassroots level but we're really working hard with our referees as well to get them and build their communication skills so that they can provide that respectful communication and that respectful response as to what they might have seen on the court and why they made the call that they that they made and the message to everybody else and coaches and players is to ask once get that response and then everyone moves on and that's what we're really trying so we've got a few catchphrases within our be a good um, sport campaign um, that we try and reinforce and a few you know catchphrases and grab words that that hopefully will trigger that appropriate level of um, behavior and the standards that we want to set throughout the whole sport one of the things you've mentioned there around the referee culture and particularly around the chaplaincy service uh, in the episode two of Smart Plays, we spoke to to Victoria Rawlings and Damien Anderson about female footy umpires and the particular challenges that female footy umpires are having within their umpire culture in AFL. A, a significant issue was that, okay, we understand that you're you're entering activity at uh, umpiring where you may be subjected to abuse, but where are you able to talk about that abuse and specifically when it's gendered? And uh, what they found in in their study was that the issue was with the umpire culture, uh, where there was actually nowhere to talk about these types of issues. That's why the chaplaincy service seems to be uh, something that addresses that. Yeah, and I think it is it's part of it, and but it doesn't band aid or it doesn't fix that internal culture that you're talking about because I think that's a really critical part, and it's something that we're starting to talk about a little bit more here at Basketball South Australia and talk about how can we reconnect our referees from grassroots, you know, 12-year-olds who are, you know, need to be 12 to start refereeing to some of our more experienced um, referees who have gone through that pathway. And we've done workshops um, recently with all the all of the referee coordinators from metro and country areas throughout South Australia just to really workshop what, what's working well and what doesn't work well. And for every referee that I've asked who is still refereeing 20 years later and you ask them why, despite all of the experience and all of the abuse or, you know, the fact that you cop as a referee, why do you still referee? Without fail, every single one of them talks about the mentors they've had, the relationships that they've made, the friendships that they've built, and I guess the like minds that they've connected with throughout their refereeing journey. This is what we need to harness. This is what we need to reconnect and where and how do we bring those mechanisms? So it's one thing to address the behaviour that we're seeing and it's not just in basketball. I think it's well known now and these conversations are so important around just Australian sport in general and the culture that we, for whatever reason, has developed which really normalises behaviour that would not be acceptable in any other environment. I'm now looking at sport and our stadiums are as places of employment. And, and, you know, the conditions of employment, they're not all that crash crash hot sometimes, you know, when you've got really heated emotional situations and, and people are just desensitised to the normal standards of behaviour that we accept. So that internal culture is, is a real big part of what we're going to start to delve in now. We've built this framework. We've got that in place. We've got a lot of a uh, lot more things that are visible to really start to reinforce the behaviour we want to see in our venues. 
Now we're going to start to focus on internal mechanisms to really start to connect those more senior referees with experience because a lot of the skills that referees need as well, particularly in our sport, it develops over time and they need time and space to actually you know, grow into the level of competition that maybe they're, they're at as far as their officiating goes. And that's probably one of the other barriers that we face is that we don't have the time because of the pressures on all grassroots sports for numbers of referees to actually help deliver the sport in itself is that we find we don't actually have the space to allow referees or kids to actually mature at their own rate to the level of competition that they might be ready for. And what we're finding is we're having to put referees that are not probably capable at the level that we need games officiated at, which is just creates this spiralling effect. It's the chicken and the egg type of situation. But a lot of their experience then maybe leads them to not continuing or not wanting to progress any further, but they haven't had the space to develop their own communication skills to be able to be more comfortable and confident to have that dialogue that the sport warrants, I guess. And that's just it's just reminded me of one of the other really critical features of the behaviour management framework that we've um, introduced that it comes back to that question that you asked about protecting the referees. We have a green shirt program where it's recognised that any referee that is wearing a green shirt, they are a beginner. And one of the options under the behaviour management framework is that all of our green shirt referees have the opportunity to make it very clear in that pre-game huddle that if the coach um, has any questions about the calls that they're making, that that only occurs within a break in play and with the stadium service officer present. So the referees have got the option to, if they if the coach wants that explanation or dialogue with them as to, you know, there might be things going on in the game that they want to talk about, that's fine. But the referee Um, especially if they're a green shirt referee, they can actually say that they want that other person present. They can renege that or bring that in at any point in time. So they might say at the beginning of the game, look, I'll try and talk to you during those those timeouts or those breaks in plays. But if at any point in time they don't feel they're comfortable anymore doing that, then they can ask for that to change. If for under 14s and below, we've also got mechanisms in there where it, that's really clear and stipulated that the SSO needs to be present unless that referee dictates otherwise. So um, the communication protocols within the framework, they're quite detailed, they're quite clear, but nothing too complicated as well. It's just some guidelines that actually put a little bit more buffer around the referee to try and give them that space to develop. That's interesting. I mean, the, the particularly around different color shirts for experience level. I mean, you could you could utilize that in community soccer, football, netball, really. I mean, any sport. Where I see it could actually benefit the players is to know that in, in most cases they're playing at a certain level that the referees and umpires are going to be at also. So, for instance, you, you're not going to get a NRL referee uh, officiating a you know an, an under 12s yes. grassroots game there's that idea that you know referees are just one thing and that there is no there's, there's essentially no skill you're just here are the laws or here are the laws of the game and you are uh, interpreting the laws of the game or you are telling us what the laws of the game and you're just you know you're just doing it there's no there's no understanding that it's actually more than that there's there's a communication aspect of it there's there's making sure that everyone's safe and protected making sure that they, they themselves are safe and protected, um, ha- having to put up with dissent. Yeah, and they're the things we need to work out. When we look at our numbers, over 60% of all of our referees at the moment are between the ages of 12 and 16. So when you think about that, we're dealing with very young adolescents who, you know, those sorts of communication, it's not an age thing. I think um, we really hash this out about some 15, 16-year-olds, 16 year they're quite capable of having those interactions 
And then there are some who need that extra support and they're still developing that confidence to be able to, they might know the rules like the back of their hand, but it's very different when you have, you know, grown adults on the sidelines raising their voice and questioning their interpretation of that call. And what that sometimes does is just spiral into the referee then starts doubting themselves and then they start making more mistakes and then everyone continues to get upset. So I think it's 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 starting to work really well. Everyone acknowledges that there is that different level in refereeing and we need to just find ways to build those confidence levels of those referees and help them move through the pathway and be confident in what they're doing, knowing that their calls will just be accepted, right, wrong or otherwise. And I think that's the thing that people don't understand is that Errors are really clear if a referee gets a call wrong from if you're watching. If, if it's a wrong foul or people have a different opinion, but nobody turns around and maybe, you know, abuses the coach for not rotating their players as quickly as they will or nobody, you know, abuses other people on the bench or the players or they shouldn't, you know, for making an error or things like that. But for one, you know, referees, it's open slather. And what people don't understand, particularly in basketball, is they might make a call and people might agree or disagree, and that's fine. People, that's the beauty of our game. Everyone's going to see things slightly different. And part of the behaviour management um, framework when we roll out the training, we also talk about perspective. And depending on where you are standing, and I use the analogy of a mug, if I pick up my mug here, you know, Depending on where you are standing, you may or may not see the handle of that mug. And we use the same analogy for basketball because you might not have seen what they saw and they might not have seen what, what you saw. So really encouraging that open dialogue. Referees might get some call, calls wrong, but in the lead up to making that call, they've probably made 10 to 15 decisions in their head about where to stand and where to watch and who's holding on to who. And all of these decisions are happening within split seconds. And then they make one decision, which you may or may not agree with, and that's the one that gets everyone's attention. And, and again, it's an intense sport. It's in it's in close proximity, and some of the calls do impact. You know, the scoreboard, the the outcome of the game, particularly in the last few minutes. It is a high pressure type sport, focusing on players' ability to just move on to that next play. And you're starting to hear it more: next play, next play, or whatever the coach's you know phrases might be. Somebody you know once said to me, and we've talked about it here: as soon as a coach starts interacting with the referee, they're no longer coaching because they're focused on the referee. So, you know, just starting to just reinforce what we want to see. You know, there's a lot of facets that we need to keep working on and it's certainly not a quick fix, but I'm really comfortable. We've got we've got something. We've got a framework that we're working to. Everyone's got a part to play and all of those roles are really clearly outlined within the framework. Yeah, there was an incident uh, recently with Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool manager and it was quite a heated game but there was one particular image where you can tell that he's uh, shouting into the referee's face and uh, one of the big issues that we found with that or that you know in terms of uh, the, the comments through social media anyway was that you're allowed to be angry as a manager you are allowed to be angry in fact it's you know if you feel that coming then then go for it but when you express that anger and you deliver that anger at the referee that's that's when it crosses the line absolutely we delivered a training camp for referees a, a few weekends ago and I stuck my head into one of the um, classes where there was a, a lot of young kids that now were getting the theory side of their next level and one of our MBL1 referees was delivering the content and they stood up there and they said, hey, if you get it wrong, then say you got it wrong to the coach as well. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, coach, I might have got that one wrong. I might have missed it. But, you know, thanks. I'm here. I'm hearing what you're saying. You know, it's about acknowledging and respecting the fact that our coaches have got a lot of knowledge and understanding of the game as well. It's not an us and them thing. It's about, you know, I made a call. I made a decision. 
maybe I got it wrong that time, but yep, I'll get the next one right. Just like you say to your your point guard who might have, you know, turned the ball over in the backcourt because, you know, that's right, next play, get on with it, try better. You know, it's the same sort of thing. So how would a player, coach, parent, spectator, passerby report an instance of abuse? So in venue, what we're that that um, stadium support officer, so the SSO, that is always the first point of contact. So they are there to manage any issues that might arise, and that includes um, reporting those instances. So that's always the first point of contact, and it's always far more effective to deal with issues in venues as they're happening. If that didn't happen in game, we've also got um, officials can also they can make formal reports, but then we do have um, obviously a complaints process and a grievance process that can kick in after that and generally in our premier sort of representative leagues or our district leagues members go through their club administration and they have that conversation and their club administrator will liaise with us on their behalf to submit any complaints um, and we'll go through the process and and do any follow-up from that regard if it's not a league where there is that club involvement then members will contact us directly and the same thing will happen where we'll do that follow-up but the in-venue support is probably another mechanism one to protect referees, it probably has a bit of a dual role because they are there to be that point of contact. But in doing so, it does actually provide visibility. And it, it's creating a lot of two-way conversations between the, the clubs and administrators and, and associations the other way around as well. So if, if, if we get feedback, the things that are occurring in venues, we, we summarise them. We're providing reports back to clubs. Clubs are becoming far more aware of what their members are doing in venues outside of the club environment. But it's going the other way as well. If, if members are now in stadiums, they're starting to understand what they expect from our staff and the people running the competitions and from the referees. So if they're seeing things that aren't happening that we've outlined should be happening, then we're getting this really positive feedback loop occurring where there's far more dialogue and conversations happening as a whole of sport as to what's happening in venues, where it's a club issue to follow up with their members, they're doing that and getting back to us. And and the same thing where we need to follow up with our staff because maybe they haven't, you know, fulfilled the expectations that we've committed to from um, a competition organiser's perspective, then we're getting that as well. So it's building positive relationships with everyone involved, you know, is leading to that, um, everyone becoming far more aware of just how often these sorts of um, behaviour issues are being managed. Yeah, and, and and accountable. That's the holy grail if clubs can moderate themselves and even encouraging behaviour that is separate to what the association's asking. Yes. Behaviour that goes towards individual clubs' values. That's right. What we talk about isn't anything that anybody wants to see or do, but sport is emotive. People get carried away. They lose, I guess, a little bit control sometimes of, of that emotional response that we have in a game. But I think what's fantastic is, is there's lots of awareness now and there's lots of discussions and it needs to continue. And I guess from my perspective, it's about, well, what can we do? What are some little tangible things that we can do to start to have those conversations on the ground? Yeah, challenge that bystander, I guess, the bystander approach. You know, that happens just when there's large crowds of people. We know that that's that's the bystander effect is a real thing. So, you know, we don't want that in venues. And I guess that's my challenge. That's my challenge to people is call the behaviour out, you know, and maybe that's what be a good sport can be catchphrased to, you know, be a good sport, meaning, you know, let's let's lift our standards of behaviour here. Yeah, yeah. A, a really good statement I heard once heard was, support the person challenge the behavior correct correct that's fantastic yeah and that's exactly what it's about nobody's perfect and people are going to make mistakes but hurling abuse and you know for whatever reason our referees across all codes are dehumanized people don't see them 
as human beings. And some of the campaigns that we've put in place, and I guess another feature of, of the framework that we've rolled out is a series of animations too. And one of them is, is, a, is a focus on Katie, who's a green shirt referee. And it, it just flips to, you know, her in her bedroom, you know, crying and wondering whether she should keep refereeing and and that's from real feedback that we've received that's that's from us talking to parents trying to get more referees out and parents actually saying look they really copped it the other night and they just don't want to go back out there some of my staff members have told me fantastic stories where you know they've they've had you know spectators just hurling a little bit of inappropriate comments out and they've gone and just sat down and spoke to them about it and, you know, even spectators going, well, we need better referees. And it's like, yep, well, we're trying, but these are the sorts of comments that actually stop us from getting referees out. And by the end of that conversation, you know, they've turned this person around and then, you know, it could have been the difference between that that referee coming back next week or not, you know, and the staff members then gone and followed up with them in the second or third game that they were doing in a row. And they've got that referee's gone from being really shaky and emotional and nearly in tears to back enjoying it because she knew she had the support of that staff member who was in that venue. And that staff member went and it was just a, you know, a two minute conversation that they had with the, with the spectator. They acknowledged that maybe a few calls were wrong and yep, but this is the big picture that we're trying to address. And, and overall, you know, it, it was a positive outcome. And I can imagine that some referees won't even want that support, but for many, that support will be critical. What's the biggest obstacle you've found with having a code of behaviour or your behavioural management framework? I think the biggest obstacle is people are desensitised to appropriate standards in sport. And actually, you know, every we have conditions of entry on every venue. All codes have codes of conduct. Do people value that? Do people actually value what we're trying to do? And I think that desensitisation to it is the biggest barrier. And you can't just put those in front of people every year and get them to sign and agree to this behaviour. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. We need to actually be addressing it as it's happening. It's just getting people to just recognise that the behaviour is not appropriate and that you wouldn't conduct yourself that way in a bank or in a supermarket. The other barrier is just getting that consistent approach when you've got multiple venues and multiple teams and it's a, you know, it's a huge sport, there's a huge number of participants You've got hundreds and hundreds of referees who are learning how to manage the sport. There's a there's always going to be a consistency issue, and that's just change management. So this is just very early days at the beginning of something that will take a long time to shift because really we're talking about large scale culture shift within within sport. So do you have any examples of clubs that have turned their behaviour around through education and implementing be a good sport? Um, look, we're probably really early into it to be able to hand on heart say that that's the case. What what we've certainly noticed is uh, an increase in awareness. We do um, provide uh, reporting and we are capturing all of the behavioural tech fouls and all of even the anecdotal type incidents that our staff will report that occurs in venues. We are collating all of that data and sharing that with our clubs, you know, every few months and cycling that around. So what we are seeing is that real increased awareness and we are seeing clubs taking real action to follow those up and have those discussions with regards to what's appropriate. You know, some, some, there are extreme cases where, you know, members are no longer members of clubs or, you know, are asked not to come back into venues for a few weeks for extreme behavior where they've been asked to leave venues, but they are the minority. 
early days, it, it's showing that there's an increased awareness and there's an increased level of activity by all clubs and people involved to address the behaviour. So people have really embraced it. We, the actual hard evidence and, and review of that shift in behaviour, it needs to be done sort of I think once it's a little bit more embedded. How do you address the challenge facing most state sporting associations of an excess of solutions and a lack of resources to implement them? Yeah, it is hard. There is uh, not a lot of people and so much to do. And I think the, the way that we've gone about it, I guess, with this framework and if, we, if we've just focused on, the, I guess, the, the culture within the sport and that, that abuse or um, dissent shown towards referees is, is really breaking down that responsibility to all of the different roles in those venues, that it isn't just up to one person or one club or one peak body to address this behaviour. I think, you know, the broader issue about the lack of resources to actually implement all the things that we need to do, I think resources is money, you know. So the more conversations that we can have that raise awareness from anyone who might be able to get involved um, and provide financial support to sports, clubs, organisations, associations to help roll out some of these these initiatives um, to help keep the discussion front of mind and to help keep people encouraged to report a behaviour. That needs to be the norm. You can't you can't not do something out of fear of being called, you know, what do kids call each other snitches these days or whatever they call people. You shouldn't be made to feel bad for being a good person and calling out behaviour. But unfortunately, that's the norm at the minute. And it's easier to sit back and say nothing. You know, get to a point where the scales tip the other way, where it's actually cool to be an upstander and actually call out, you know, inappropriate behaviour, that would be great. But that's just about momentum and speaking about things. And, you know, if we can get people that want to support the rollout of that and, you know, help us get some of these images and um, initiatives out more broadly, then that will go a long way. So, yeah, that's the million-dollar question, that one, isn't it? Well, that's actually the million-dollar question coming up. So the large-scale culture shift is what you want? Yeah, Absolutely. You want unlimited funding and resources, and you've got it now as part of this <laughs> next question. Yep. What's a potential silver bullet that would improve behavior in basketball stadiums across the state, across the country, across the world? I don't reckon there's one silver bullet. That's that's a tricky thing. There's so many different interconnected parts. Off the top, money, if you had money, then you can pay people more. And that's not just to referee, that's to coach, to mentor, to be there, adding the value to that experience. I think one thing I would love to do if I had unlimited funds would be to create a club room, some sort of venue where referees from all codes actually have a home base. So what we're talking about today, it isn't unique to basketball uh, and a lot of referees and a lot of officials officiate multiple sports as well, but they all face the same issues. But a referee walks they have to generate their own networks they have to generate their own they actually a lot of the times have to reach out to find out where those pathways and opportunities are whereas if a player walks into a club they get a club and a team and a coach and a club rooms referees don't have that and I feel like if if we can somehow create a bit more of that physical um, home base as well as that internal culture and mentoring and friendship and camaraderie and all of those things that players get out of sport and anybody that is anywhere in sport will talk about, you know, those life skills that you learn from sports. Well, it's the same in referee spaces, but they have to generate those teams and those networks themselves. We don't enable that, I don't think, well enough. So that would be that would be that pie in the sky piece for me if I had a million dollars. It would be how do we create that referee home base, that referee club, that 
build their own skills and networks, go and watch each other because I see that happen in tournaments. You know, referees are amazing. They go out, they support each other, they debrief. The amount of the amount of self-assessment and um, reflection and reporting and watching, watching back the videos that our referees do is incredible and it goes completely unnoticed by, you know, mum or dad watching on the sidelines. You know, it is a self-motivated, driven career path really but the only way that you get better is by having constant feedback. That's the other thing. Like all players have coaches. They get constant feedback. Not all our referees. We try and get as many referee coaches out as we can, but it's no different. If referees have got coaches on the sideline giving that reactive feedback, then they're going to get better quicker. Um, but we don't have the resources to do that nor the funds to do that. But that, that's, that's where we want to be because they will develop just as quick as a player will develop if they get given the same amount of training and resources and feedback from a coach. So, you know, if, imagine if we had a, a coach for every five referees and they, you know, went around to the same venues and developed together as a team would, you know, that would be fantastic. Yeah, and particularly at the grassroots, having a unified, you know, multi-code uh, referee collective, I mean, that'll help retention in all sports because, I mean, if you are a person that referees one sport on the weekend, but you'd like to do more, I mean, that that's that's going towards making it potentially a, you know, semi-professional gig rather than just a casual gig. But then also, it's, you know, standard, it can standardize the support systems. Um, so I think that's fantastic. Yep, absolutely. All right, Jackie, congratulations to you and your colleagues at Basketball South Australia for taking this proactive approach to promoting positive behaviour in basketball stadiums. And thank you for joining us on Smart Plays. No, thanks very much. Long way to go, but we've made a start. You've been listening to Smart Plays, proudly brought to you by Club Respect, Victorian Women's Trust, and its harm prevention entity, the Dugdale Trust for Women and Girls. We would like to thank all of our supporters and donors with special thanks to the Wood Foundation and Spices Australia. Executive producer is Mary Crooks. Creative producer is Patrick Skeen. And thanks to the team at the Victorian Women's Trust. Smart Plays was edited and mixed by Paria Tarzade. I'm your executive producer, host, and Club Respect manager, Tarek Bayraklu. This podcast was produced in Melbourne and we respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. For more information about this podcast, including show notes and resources, visit clubrespect.org.au and follow us on social media at Club Respect Team. You can also find out more about the Victorian Women's Trust via their website, vwt.org.au and follow on social media at Big Women's Trust. Thank you for listening.